Hi there. I'm Jen Hale Christie, and you're listening to Preach Her. This podcast is designed around the reality that many of our churches are shrinking because we haven't created a place where everyone can belong. So if you're seeing that reality in your own church, or you've experienced that and left the church, this podcast is for you. Welcome. One quick note before we jump in. If you haven't already done so, I encourage you to check out and join our Patreon community. It's an awesome way to join me and others in this good work, whether you want to support women preachers and make sure this work continues, or if you want to partner with me and have actual direct input, there are opportunities for you to engage at whatever level feels good for you. So click the link in the show notes and let me know what you think. And a quick shout out to Sarah, Lauren, and Mark, who have all joined our community. Thank you guys. I am so glad you're here and excited to partner with you. Today, I'm so excited to introduce you to Fallon Opsal Barton. I first met Fallon when she was an undergraduate student at Pepperdine, dating my friend Sarah's son, Nate. Fallon and Nate have since married, earned master's degrees, traveled the world, and landed in Nashville, Tennessee, where they are both ministering and working on more degrees. Fallon is also a friend and colleague through our network of women ministers, and today she's going to share with us out of Luke chapter 20. In the interview that follows, she'll share about her unique journey towards ministry and how she struggled with this text. I encourage you to stay tuned for that candid and insightful conversation. And now, without further ado, let's hear from Fallon. Our text for today is Luke chapter 20, verses 1 through 19. One day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple courts and proclaiming the good news, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, together with the elders, came up to him. Tell us by what authority you are doing these things, they said. Who gave you this authority? Jesus replied, I will also ask you a question. Tell me, John's baptism, was it from heaven or of human origin? They discussed it among themselves and said, If we say from heaven, he will ask, Why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, all the people will stone us, because they are persuaded that John was a prophet. So they answered, We don't know where it was from. Jesus said, Neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. He went on to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard, rented it to some farmers, and went away for a long time. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants so they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. He sent another servant. But that one also they beat and treated shamefully and sent away empty-handed. He sent still a third, and they wounded him and threw him out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my son, whom I love. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they talked the matter over. This is the heir, they said. Let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When the people heard this, they said, God forbid. Jesus looked directly at them and asked, Then what is the meaning of that which is written? 
The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. The teachers of the law and the chief priests looked for a way to arrest him immediately, because they knew he had spoken this parable against them, but they were afraid of the people. When I read this text, I imagine myself as one of the bystanders in the temple courts. I am listening to Jesus proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God when suddenly Jesus is cut off by a sharp voice. What gives you the right, Jesus? What do you know that gives you the authority to cleanse the temple or forgive sins or proclaim any sort of truth about the kingdom of God? I look up to see the religious leaders, the ones who are always following Jesus around, glaring at him and everyone else. I watch with bated breath as Jesus peers at the group for a few seconds before speaking. I, too, am afraid and eager to hear how Jesus will respond. This question of authority that the religious leaders ask Jesus initiates this battle of wits, and the outcome of the whole exchange hinges on this question of authority. What gives Jesus the right to say what he says and to do what he does? Throughout Jesus' ministry, his words and deeds showed that he proclaimed an authority that he really hadn't earned as far as the religious leaders were concerned. Jesus had no formal training, no official title. Yet for the last three years, he healed people, forgave sins, and proclaimed this radical idea that the kingdom of God is near. Finally, Jesus did something that demanded a more direct response from the religious leaders. Just a few verses before they questioned his authority, Jesus cleansed the temple of the moneylenders in chapter 19. That was a very public and very bold move for someone with absolutely no authority to judge the temple in Jerusalem, the very center of the religious leader's domain. After Jesus cleansed the temple, it appears that the religious leaders plotted for days about how they were going to respond. They finally decided to start by forcing Jesus to make a claim about his authority. The religious leaders had probably debated all the different ways that they thought Jesus might respond, and they had probably come up with all sorts of wicked burns and savage comebacks that they would say in response so that they could take Jesus down once and for all. Clearly, however, they had not planned for the particular response Jesus gives them. When Jesus asks about where John the Baptist got his authority, they freeze. According to the debate they held among themselves, they don't know how to answer Jesus because they are far more interested in winning the argument than about finding truth. So Jesus tells this thinly veiled parable in which the tenants beat up the servants and kill the son because they thought they wielded the authority of ownership over the land just because they knew the land. It's not a difficult parallel to make to the religious leaders who killed the prophets and would kill Jesus because they thought they wielded the authority of God over the people just because they knew the Torah. It's a humiliating parable for the religious leaders, and their response is tragically comical. They cry, God forbid, or as some translations have it, certainly not, immediately revealing that they know exactly who they are in the story. But let's pause before we condemn the religious leaders too harshly. In all the stories we hear about Jesus and the religious leaders butting heads, 
We are so eager to identify ourselves with the heroes of the stories. We want to see ourselves as the devoted apostle, the healed leper, the forgiven adulterer, maybe even Jesus himself. Just a few minutes ago, as I imagined this scene in Luke, I cast myself as a third-party follower of Jesus, not as the religious leaders. But the reality is that we are all much more like the religious leaders than we would like to admit. I, for one, can deeply relate to the emotions of indignation, jealousy, and fear that the religious leaders must be experiencing in this scene. I love my achievements, and I take really seriously the privileges that my hard work and education have earned me. Think for a second about all of the time and energy you have committed to building up your reputation so that you can speak and act with authority on something. It can be about anything, medicine, gardening, parenthood, the Marvel Universe, anything at all. For me, it's theology. I have an MA in theology and ethics, and I'm working toward a doctor of ministry. I'm also a campus minister at a university. I've spent years of my life, and I will spend many more, becoming an expert in theology so that I have the authority to be a religious leader. I still have a long way to go, but my education has at least earned me some level of credibility, especially when I'm interacting with college students. So when I read this passage, I imagine what it would feel like if I were teaching a group of college students, for example, and a high school freshman corrected or challenged me. I'm not proud to admit this, but I would feel indignant and defensive that someone with certainly less knowledge than me would have the arrogance to challenge me like that. I would do my absolute best to protect my own reputation and reassert my position in the group. When we feel like the authority and power and influence that we have earned is challenged, interactions become way less about truth and way more about ego. It becomes far less about protecting the relationship and the community and far more about protecting the self. Just like the religious leaders, our livelihoods, our vocations, our very identities often rest on the reputations we have crafted and maintained for ourselves. Those reputations give us the authority to speak, to persuade, to teach, and to make decisions. So we have to establish, protect, and assert our authority. And of course, we don't just claim our authority about the things that really, really matter. I once heard a married couple scream at each other over whether the tiny AC light in their car was orange or yellow. And of course, we don't just claim authority about the things we know a whole lot about. Forgive me if I'm just not convinced that every talking head is an actual expert about the complexities of healthcare or climate change or immigration. And of course, we don't just claim authority against people who we know are less knowledgeable than we are. Spend three minutes around any toddler and you'll see how quickly humans start making desperate grabs at their own authority against literally everyone. We love to be right, don't we? We cling to the authority we believe we've earned. We cling to the authority we know we haven't earned. This is true for us even with relatively meaningless things. Imagine how much more true it was for the religious leaders. Everything they knew about themselves and about God and about the world hung in the balance of Jesus' authority. Of course they wanted him to be wrong. Very few of us in their position would want him to be right. And we would do everything in our power to convince ourselves and everyone around us that he wasn't. 
I wish I could say that even if I'm like the religious leaders in my desire to hold on to authority, at least I don't argue with the actual son of God. But you and I both know I can't say that. None of us can. We might dress it up in religious language. We might downplay it with circumstantial explanations. But the reality is we challenge Jesus's authority all the time, just like the religious leaders. Every time we justify a reason not to actively love our neighbors and our enemies, the poor, the widow, the orphan, the immigrant, the foreigner, the refugee, the sick, the naked, the hungry, the thirsty, the Democrat, the Republican, the Muslim, the Christian, the feminist, the complementarian. Every time I convince myself not to actively love, I am challenging Jesus's authority. And if you're anything like me, then, well, we're asserting our authority over Jesus's authority incessantly. And I think this might be the reason why. This whole time, as I've talked about authority, I've talked about it exactly as the religious leaders did. I've talked about what we know, what we think we know, and what we think we can convince other people we know. It sounds just like the religious leaders. What education, what title, what training, what role gives you the right, Jesus? What teacher of the law authorized you to do and say these things? What do you know that gives you the authority you claim? Of course, Jesus knows everything. But talking about Jesus' authority from that perspective at all is a mistake. The same mistake the religious leaders made. Jesus' authority didn't come from what he knew, as the religious leaders believed. As we vie for authority over each other, just like the religious leaders did, demanding an answer to what do you know, Jesus is looking at us asking, who do you know? I believe Jesus values knowledge. I believe Jesus values wisdom based on information and thoughtful study. But thankfully, Jesus' authority and Jesus' identity aren't rooted in what he knows. Jesus' authority is rooted in who he knows. Not in the rabbi who trained him, not in his education to become a teacher, not in the network of people he has surrounded himself with to improve his chances of promotion. Jesus's authority is rooted in how he intimately knows God and how God intimately knows him. And he invites us to find our authority and therefore our identities in God, too. That's why when the religious leaders exclaim, God forbid, Jesus doesn't call them out directly. He doesn't leap up to his feet, pointing at them, saying, See, you come here challenging my authority, but what do you know? Instead, the text says that Jesus looks directly at them. What an oddly specific detail for Luke to include here. I think Luke wants us to pause here, just as Jesus paused to look at the religious leaders. What is the look in Jesus' eyes in this moment? Is he angry, triumphant, mocking, sly, confused? When I linger on this sentence, I can't see Jesus' face as anything but deeply sad. He looked directly at them. He saw them. And what he saw was a self-appointed blasphemy a prevention squad who knew a lot about God, but who didn't know God well enough to see the actual incarnation of God right under their noses. Jesus looks at them because he doesn't just know about them. He knows them, just like he knows God, just like he knows us. I imagine that Jesus felt immense love for the religious leaders in that moment. 
He knew them. He loved them. And he was heartbroken that they were so stuck on what they knew about God and God's laws that they never gave themselves a chance to really know God or God's people. Perhaps in his mind, Jesus was already praying to God, forgive them, Abba, for they know not what they do. In fact, that's how I read Jesus's quote of Psalm 118. It's like Jesus is saying to the religious leaders, God chose me as the stone upon which the kingdom will be built. If you continue to resist or ignore the stone, it will eventually crush you. The authority you've claimed for yourself because of what you know is no match for the authority God has given me based on who God is. If you fall against this stone in humility, it will break you. It will break the chains you have placed on yourself and others. It will break you open and fill you with new creation. It will break apart what you think you know about God and reconstruct it into a profound, intimate knowledge of God. Upon hearing this, the religious leaders were too scared to be wrong, too scared to let go of their own authority. So they didn't. They dug in their heels and they killed Jesus. They preferred using their authority to compete with Jesus over using their authority to follow Jesus. They preferred keeping their own authority about God over submitting their authority to God. They preferred asserting their authority over others over pointing others to Jesus's authority that invites all of us into the kingdom of God. How often do we do just that? How often do we refuse to submit our authority to Jesus? How often are we willing to humbly lay down what we think we know and instead learn at Jesus' feet because of who God says Jesus is? I know that this will be a lifelong struggle for us, one at which we will constantly and continually fail, a lesson Jesus will have to teach us over and over again. How grateful I am that instead of making us feel like fools, Jesus instead looks directly at us and invites us to break our life-draining authority upon him so that he can fill us with the life of God. Amen. All right. Today's guest preacher is Fallon Opsal Barton. So thank you so much for joining us on the podcast and for dwelling in a text and bringing a word to us, to um, this podcast community. I've got Fallon here for a quick interview. And Fallon, I just want to ask you a few questions. So can you tell us, for those um, in our community who don't yet know you, can you tell us about kind of where you are located and what you do day to day? Yeah, thank you. Um, I am a campus minister at Lipscomb University. Um, my formal title is Director of Engagement and Spiritual Practice. So I work with students, uh, ministering to them day to day, and also do uh, other engagement type things um, with the university, including faculty, staff, community members. And yeah, it's a really exciting position. I'm brand new to it. We just moved here. My husband and I just moved here six weeks ago. So it's a very new position still. Uh, so it, I, there's a lot of opportunity uh, and um, a lot of things to learn. And that's really exciting and invigorating to me. So it's been really fun and I'm excited to, uh, to be here. Um, we just moved back from Uganda and I'm a Southern California girl. So Tennessee is very different, but that's where we are right now. And we're loving it. And tell us what you were doing in Uganda, because this is really cool. 
Yeah, um, my husband and I were working with a nonprofit called Kibo Group International, super cool nonprofit, uh, but I am obviously biased. Um, it actually came up, my husband grew up there as a missionary kid and his parents were on a missionary team whose church planting work evolved into what Kibo is today over the course of 25 years, uh, very organically. And it is completely run by Ugandans, most of whom were friends or co-workers of the Bartons when they were uh, missionaries uh, there in the 90s. And so a lot of the people who we worked with day to day in Uganda who were doing the on the ground work with rural villages were people who either were changing Nate's diaper or were running around with him in diapers <laughs> when he was a kid. So when I got there, it was my first time on the African continent when we landed in Uganda and I, we were there for a year. Um, it was my first time being there and it was kind of like meeting the Ugandan side of the family. Uh, and the work they do is just incredible. They do holistic community sustainable development, which means they uh, start with uh, sanitation and hygiene. They start with the very basics of, of de development in communities. They do clean water access. Um, so digging and repairing wells. They teach women how to build uh, fuel efficient stoves because women tend to cook over open fires there. Uh, they do life skills education and counseling in schools with children, um, both with groups and with individual children. They do uh, health and spiritual empowerment. So they use the Bible to teach lessons about uh, anger management and, uh, and marital relations, um, as well as uh, deconstructing some health myths that are really dangerous that still pervade the, the villages. Uh, so they do some, some health prevention education. And then they do economic flourishing. They plant trees and they use that as an uh, as a gateway to um, to doing economic flourishing and long-term uh, future planning and investment for, for villages as a whole. So Kibo might be in a village for five years. Uh, it's, it's a really cool thing, very long-term relationships. And Nate and I were there taking photos and videos and documenting all the good work that they do uh, that our Ugandan friends and coworkers do in the villages. So uh, yeah, it was, it was an incredible, life-changing, amazing year. That is awesome. I knew that Kibo Group was responsible for some really delicious coffee, but I did not know <laughs> the breadth of what they do. So thank you for sharing. That's so cool. Yeah, no problem. Yeah, it was, it was really special. They do also have phenomenal coffee. <laughs> <laughs> um, so when, when did you first hear, like, a, feel like a nudge or like a prompting um, to preach, if you can yeah. remember? So um, my journey with, with, uh, with preaching and leading and with the churches of Christ is actually a little bit backwards. Um, and I hope that this, uh, that my story is life-giving to women who have the opposite experience that when I did. So I actually did not grow up in the churches of Christ. I didn't grow up in the church at all. Um, my family was kind of nominally Christian, but we, we didn't really attend church unless my Seventh-day Adventist grandparents were in town. <laughs> and uh, and in, uh, my, in, when I was in middle school, uh, there was a bit of a trauma in my family. And my dad started going back to the church of his childhood, which was the Seventh-day Adventist church. And I, for a few years, he went by himself. And then one year, one day when I was a sophomore in high school, I just wanted to go with him all of a sudden. And so I did, and I never stopped going. And uh, in, in my church um, growing up, well, in my high school years, there was no limitation on women. All of our leadership was male, but um, I knew that, like, for example, the preacher and the head pastor before the current pastor was a woman. And so 
at least in name, women were fully included as leaders. I felt fully empowered as a woman um, alongside my, my male peers in our high school youth group. And so I didn't even know that there was a question <laughs> about women being fully equal to men in terms of spiritual gifting and leadership, uh, leadership opportunity until I got to college. And I went to Pepperdine University, which is a Church of Christ University, of course. And I didn't even know what the Churches of Christ were until I was pretty well into my freshman year of college. Uh, when I saw Church of Christ, I thought that was a fancy way of saying Christian because we're all churches <laughs> in some way. So I didn't even know it was a um, denominational or uh, a denominational term until until I was until I was well into a few weeks into college at least, because a lot of my friends were Church of Christ, and I eventually got the hang of it. Um, and even then, <laughs> I didn't even really, um, the, the, the question about, about the uh, relationship between women and men still really, it was a very slow kind of revelation for me. Um, and what's interesting is that I knew about it more in terms of testimony and what my, what my peers experienced in their churches, if they were Church of Christ growing up. Uh, and in terms of what my my mentors, especially my the mentors who were women, what they experienced, but my experience actually at Pepperdine was was extremely affirming and empowering. So I knew it was a it was a problem for a lot of women. I knew it was a struggle that a lot a lot, a lot of women faced. But I was very blessed to be surrounded by women and men, uh, mentors and peers who were nothing but affirming and and empowering to me. That's awesome. Well said. Thank you so much for being willing to share that with us. Yeah, you're welcome. Um, I want to ask you about the sermon, mm -hmm. um, about what the process was like for you, maybe how it was similar or different from other sermons you've prepared. I'm assuming you haven't preached on a podcast before. I haven't. So. <laughs> okay, so tell us what that was like. Yeah, so um, I like you know, like I said briefly, sermon writing, the process of writing the sermon, even. I would say far more so for me than actually delivering the sermon is a spiritual practice for me. I feel intimately close to God in the process of thinking about scripture in a very particular way that, uh, that you're, you're forced as you read it to, to dwell in it, um, to read it repeatedly, to see new things in it, to connect it to my life and to, uh, to our contemporary cultural context. Uh, in in ways that when you're just reading scripture without that kind of uh, motivation that mm -hmm. it just doesn't it doesn't sink in for me in the same way and so it's one of my favorite spiritual practices to prepare a sermon or a lesson and um, and and usually what I do is I, I read a scripture with the whatever passage I'm assigned or I've chosen over and over again and I dwell on it and I go on walks and I think about it and it's usually pretty natural for a story from my own life to kind of come up out of that, for the spirit to, to inspire some sort of connection in that. And then it just kind of flows. And obviously there's editing and there's, um, there's you know, reconsidering and reorganization. Um, but this sermon was actually uniquely challenging for me. Uh, it didn't, the, the, there was no connection that just kind of came up as naturally as as it as it tends to uh, oftentimes, and so um, 
And so I, I guess I could have found that discouraging, but the way I chose to look at it was that there was something a little bit deeper in my own life that I was having a hard time connecting to this passage. And that means that there was a, a very, a special sermon I really needed to preach to myself in here. <laughs> and that my, maybe my, uh, my subconscious was fighting that a little bit. <laughs> I don't know if that's true, but, <laughs> but that's kind of how it felt. So, um, so anyway, I just kind of started writing ideas as they came and, and the end product looks very different than, than the directions I originally started taking it in. And there was a lot of um, what they call in journalism, killing my pretties, <laughs> sentences and paragraphs and ideas that, um, <laughs> that, that really didn't end up being um, a part of the main point. And the end product really is a sermon that I need to, I needed to preach to myself. Um, mm -hmm. And that I think a lot of us don't just need to hear, but need to hear constantly. Mm -hmm. um, certainly that's true for me. And um, and so, and so this question of authority, this, this question of, of the authority that we hold on to is, is really profound for me because um, I'm an Enneagram three and I didn't include that intentionally in the sermon <laughs> because our identities are not in the Enneagram, <laughs> yeah, yeah. but it does say something about, um, about my personality. I, I am, like I mentioned in the sermon, I'm, I'm achievement oriented. Um, I, I, it's true that I really do. I value the, the authority that I have. Um, and I think there's a certain level to which that authority is valuable. Um, I'm not anti-authority by any means, or, and I'm certainly not anti-education, obviously, or anti-knowledge. Um, those things are, are valuable and important and worthy of respect. Um, but I tend to find my identity in those things. And um, it's really hard for me to let go of them. And it's, it's difficult in interactions to, um, to, to be willing to submit my own authority or to submit to others when I feel like I should, uh, I, I have, I, I should be in control. Um, it's hard to let go of control and authority and influence and power, especially when you think we've earned it. And so this sermon was very personal for me. Um, and, uh, you know, the example I gave with the, uh, the freshman challenging my authority in front of college students, it's a dramatization that's never happened before or anything, but, <laughs> but my, my expression of how I thought it might go down was pretty accurate, I think. Um, I, I feel that way in all kinds of circles. Um, and, and so it's a, it's a constant battle of trying to, uh, to lay down our authority, not not in some, not necessarily always even in submission to other people's authority, but because the question isn't even about authority at all. Um, sometimes in interactions, and um, and so laying that down is is challenging, and um, but it also that that struggle brings me closer to God, and and points me closer to Jesus, and so um, and certainly the. The idea of challenging Jesus's authority is something we all, I think, uh, blindly do, and certainly I do. And to write, um, when I wrote that paragraph about all the ways we challenge Jesus's authority and, and justify our own reasonings and knowledge over what we know to be, um, to be good and to be holy and truthful, um, I, I relate to that. And, that, and to make that connection, to have that 
for the spirit to make that connection for me that that is actually challenging Jesus's authority, just like the religious leaders did, was really convicting for me. And it will be a conviction that I will continually have to have reminded in me. <laughs> um, I think all of us do. Yeah. Well, I'm so glad, I mean, to hear you say those things, but also that, um, you know, when you did kind of a first pass and had a sermon there, you could have just gone with it, you know, even if it wasn't what you felt like was your best work or totally, you know, true to the depth of what was there at work in the sermon and in your own heart. But um, instead, like you were willing to push deeper and, you know, Mm -hmm. to continue to be in that uncomfortable space. Um, Because, I mean, I feel like that's um, the thing that I don't know. I don't know if it's a little like a, a little secret. I don't know how many people know this, but I I always feel like whatever I preach is what I need to hear first. Mm-hmm. Like I'm sure there are other people that need to hear it too. <laughs> but I feel like I you know when it when it all comes together, I'm like, oh man, like <laughs> how can I get up there and say this? I need this. Like this, Absolutely. you know. Yeah. But um, yeah. So I just. I think it's yeah. it's a it's a good message that definitely spoke um, very strongly to me as a fellow three. <laughs> um, yeah, so thank you, thank you yeah, for sharing no the word. And yeah, I think that was another struggle with this text is that there is so much there um, to to unpack in in Luke twenty one to nineteen, and uh, yeah, it was it was intimidating. It was um, challenging for me to choose an angle. For the, to the sacrifice of all of the other things that are in that text that are worthy of, of being explored and discussed that are convicting. Um, and so I think that was another struggle, but I, I do think what, what came together was, like you said, certainly the sermon that I needed to hear most. Mm, yeah. Well, so I know you've got a presence on social media. So if somebody wanted to connect with you, is there a way to follow you? Do you keep a blog? Like how can people kind of get more connected with you? Yeah, so uh, my Instagram is uh, at Fallon Barton, F-A-L-O-N-B-A-R-T-O-N. Um, I'm on Facebook as Fallon Opsaw Barton with, with my middle slash maiden name in there. And, um, and then uh, my, I don't have a, my own personal blog, but Lipscomb-OSF.com is our office's blog that uh, I'll be regularly writing for. And um, that has some exciting things as we're trying a a kind of university-wide collaborative of spiritual formation-related articles uh, contributed by by the entire community. So uh, yeah, those are those are some good ways to follow follow me. That's awesome. Well, thank you. I'll get all those linked in the show notes. And just again, I just want to thank you for taking the time. I know you have a really busy schedule and you're getting settled Mm -hmm. into a new job and, you know, you wrestled with this sermon even more than previous sermons. So I'm sure Mm -hmm. this really took some time and, and a lot of energy. So I just want to let you know how much I appreciate it. And I think this community appreciates it. So thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. Thank you so much. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll talk again soon. All right. Thank you. If today you find yourself on the outside, without a seat at the table or a voice in the conversation, may you lean into the truth that you're always welcome in God's community. If you are one who wears the name minister, pastor, elder, shepherd, or are otherwise known as a faith leader, may you extend God's yes to those you might have said no to in the past. May you be emboldened and encouraged to honor the space that God has already created for all. Let's build bigger tables together.
If something in you was stirred today, reach out. Hearing from you really does help to shape the future of this podcast. You'll have the greatest impact and opportunities for engagement by joining our Patreon community by clicking that Become a Patron button on our page, patreon.com slash jenhalechristie. And I would love for you to connect with me on Instagram or LinkedIn or Facebook at jenhalechristie. Lastly, you would really help others to connect with this work if you would subscribe and rate and review us on iTunes. That's our show for today. Thank you so much for listening and I will catch you next time.